Let me just make sure it's on. It's on. Okay. So when did you catch COVID? Oh, just about a week and a half ago, I'd say. Yeah. First time? <laughs> yes, first time really dealing with it. I okay. think I might have might have had it in February of 2020, but that was before Same. it officially was out. So I was in Europe then. And uh, yeah, I think that, but that was really minor. I mean, this time it wasn't that bad either. It was just, I had a fever for a few days and just mm. been really tired and that sort of thing. And it was just, it was just a more of a nuisance. kind of stays there. Yeah, it's especially before the holidays, it was kind of annoying because had a lot of things to do and you had to basically, you know, week and a half just not do any of that stuff. So a little late on the Christmas shopping, so to speak. Okay. Okay. So we've got it on record here for all your family, all your friends. You're ill. That's, your, that's why <laughs> that's they didn't get a present. Right. Yeah, no, I'm better now. It's just, uh, like I said, just still some residual stuff, just feeling tired and a little bit of a cough. So if I start having a coughing fit, I shouldn't, but in case I do, that's why. That's why. <laughs> Don't worry, just hit the mute and I'll just fill in the space. Um, I won't leave you there hanging, stretching in the corner. Well, listen, I had it in the summer, my third time, um, same as you, I had it 2020 in February, and I had it Christmas 2021. Christmas Day, actually. And uh, yeah, in the summer recently, and I still have a little bit of that cough. It hasn't really shifted. You know, it's sort of there, just a little hacky sort of thing, you know, which is a bit of a shame. I'm an ex-smoker, 13 years anyway. Uh, 13 years ago, I quit. I mean, so, you know, there's always that little bit of chestiness that stays with you. Right. When you um, when you've worn the cigarettes for so long. I was like, hardcore, <laughs> hardcore smoker i was i was in it to win it um listen i think after the year that you guys have had with on the trail alaska you know all these different things that you've done and i'm just that's just one of them it's coming out soon no wonder your body probably said to you like listen take five (laughs) i'm gonna knock you off your feet for a week and a half and you'll just catch up on that energy that you've expended in this time and um could be yeah that's life but i do want to talk to you about that because i've been looking at the snippets i know there's a uh, is it part two that's coming out on december the 25th yes on yeah. the trail alaskan sasquatch yep beyond the trail bigfoot beyond the trail on the co- uh, uh, the alaskan coastal sasquatch part two okay. so that's two-part series you know called the last the alaskan coastal sasquatch part of bigfoot beyond the trail so uh, you know, we've obviously got a lot of other Bigfoot Beyond the Trail films and episodes, but this was kind of our two-parter way to end the uh, in the end this end the year off with a sort of a big kind of spectacular, most mm. epic trip we had done so far for sure. Even though it was back in May that we went, but uh, it just felt appropriate to kind of close it out on that. That's amazing. I, I it's a different world. I know it's part of the United States, but it's not really. It's a different country. It's a different world, isn't it? And I, I just like to, to find out about that. I mean, you're in Alaska. You're used to hiking in the Appalachians, right? Yeah. What's the difference? You go to a place like Alaska, you know, the bears are bigger, they're meaner, they're better. The wildlife is, it's it's serious. The country is serious. You're out hiking around, I suppose, even in summer. You know, if you get lost, you know, you're in trouble if you don't have the right kind of equipment. So, Tell us a bit about that. What was it like? Well, everything in Alaska essentially is bigger, uh, just territory-wise. You look at it, what's so crazy about it is 
Alaska is obviously the largest U.S. state, and it's you know rivals a lot of the Canadian provinces, which in general are are a lot bigger than any of the single U.S. states, right? I mean, uh, Alaska is pretty much I think has more. If you look at all the coastline, it's I think more than both of the east and west coast combined, just in total. I mean, they have a, the Aleutian Islands, which go all the way almost over to Japan. If you look at that, so. Just in terms of raw coastland, and, and the thing about Alaska is it's so large, yet it's so sparsely populated. It's uh, a little over 700,000 people live there, uh, which to put in perspective, Vermont is one of the smallest states in the U.S. and has a population of just over half a million. So, and you know, how many times larger Alaska is than Vermont? It's actually ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So there's just so much there that's un- unexplored. I mean, I think 10, 10 or 10% or so of the state is actually explored and mapped out. And a lot of it is just absolute nothingness. I mean, where people live in Alaska, it's very small sections of the state. I mean, you've got the Anchorage area, the Kenai Peninsula, up to Fairbanks. That's kind of where the main population centers live. And then you've got places like Nome that are so far off the beaten path, you can really only fly there. Uh, the capital, even even though it's in a different direction, it's on, kind of in, wedged with British Columbia, the capital, Juneau, and a lot of those communities you can only get into by plane or boat. You literally cannot drive into the capital of Alaska. I mean, it's just a different place. It's a very frontier feeling, absolutely. It's one of those last kind of vestiges of untouched, unspoiled wilderness uh, where people really, I mean, in a lot of places in the in the lower 48, as it's called, you know, in these in the other states, there's plenty of wilderness areas and really interesting places. We've been to a lot of those, but I don't think anything really compares to Alaska. Whereas in Alaska, people are literally living on the edge of wilderness, pretty much wherever you look. So, as you mentioned, I mean, the the animals are bigger. They have uh, two of the you know two of the uh, bear species, three actually technically found in North America. You've got, of course, black bears, which are mm. Found in the much much of the rest of North America. That's something that you know I deal with in New Hampshire, where I live, and pretty much everywhere else in the continent. But Alaska also has grizzly bears, which are grizzly bears slash brown bears. There's kind of the same species, but the variations are a little bit different. Brown bears are more towards the coast, and they have access to seafood and kind of a richer diet. So they actually tend to grow a little bit bigger than grizzly bears that we found inland, say 100 miles from the coast. They are a little bit smaller. I mean, not by a lot, don't get me wrong. <laughs> They're both formidable. And then you have the Kodiak brown bears, which I believe are the largest bear in the world, um, aside from polar bears. Essentially, they just they grow to astro- astronomical proportions living on Kodiak Island, which is not that far from the Kenai Peninsula. And then the, the moose subspecies in Alaska is the largest on planet Earth. I mean, you have, I, I deal with moose as well in New Hampshire. We ha- There's moose out in you know the northern kind of states and then the Rocky Mountains, but the ones in Alaska are bigger than those, you know, so they're absolute behemoth so there's just so many different types of wildlife up there just as it is and then you have have mountain lions mountain lions there as well mountain lions do not actually exist in alaska officially i mean there's some perhaps sightings down in the southeast part of the state which would make sense they might straggle that way but for whatever reason mountain lions are not up in alaska there are lynx however which are a lot smaller than mountain lion but uh you know we were there in alaska we found lynx footprints and i have recorded what i believe is lynx audio as well overnight in the if in our kind of vicinity of where we were in the kenai peninsula so yeah i mean to put a long story short alaska is really unlike anything 
in the U.S. or even in North America. I mean, you maybe have a few places in Alaska, like the Yukon, or in uh, Canada, excuse me, like the Yukon or something that is sort of in the same tier as Alaska and very sparsely populated with these, you know, behemoths, really ice age holdovers in terms of wildlife. Uh, but there's not many places in the lower 48 that really compare. I mean, there's plenty of great spots, but I think Alaska, just because of how remote it is, it adds that element. You know, a lot of places in the lower 48 you can drive to and then, yeah, yeah. let's hike seven miles in or we can take okay. an airboat into this huge swamp. But in Alaska, I mean, we're talking the location we were at specifically for the Alaskan coastal Sasquatch was a remote cabin that's over an hour boat ride from the nearest port. I mean, so you're talking just an hour plus just to get to where you're trying to go. And from that spot, I mean, you, you can look in any direction and basically see nothing. I mean, you could just go off, hike in one direction, and never be seen again up there. Uh, you know, if you were to so choose, a lot of people do end up in Alaska that way and sort of off the beaten path. So it's it's a very absurd kind of place, actually, if you think about it. It's, it's very the mystique. And I think the, the, the summer, there's no there's not a lot of darkness. And then in the wintertime, it's very dark given it's so far north. It's just a very interesting place with some very interesting people and interesting stories. Okay, and then let's talk about some of those people and some of the stories. Now, I don't want you to give away too much of what people are about to see. Obviously, we can't do that. But perhaps there must be some side stories, bits and pieces that you came across about encounters with Sasquatch or other creatures in that area that you could, you could share with us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard of years... For years stories coming out of Alaska and it just kind of made sense uh, especially southeast Alaska up to the Kenai Peninsula uh, there's of course the, the Dr. Robert Alley has written a fantastic book Raincoat Sasquatch which covers much of that sort of uh, rainforest area in southeast Alaska down to the Pacific Northwest which I mean if you look at it essentially from you know the Kodiak Island area including the Kenai Peninsula of Alaska southeast Alaska British Columbia Washington Oregon Northern California that belt which stretches for thousands of miles is some of these this habitat of rain temperate rainforests that are very similar you know in, in they're they're never too hot never too cold and the, the amount of precipitation they get and th this area consistently has seemed to have been an area that's reported a lot of Sasquatch activity. A lot of the tribes in that area have very rich culture. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Salish people, the, the term Sasquatch, where that originated from, the stories of the Zonaqua, the, the totems, a lot of the native folklore revolving around the hairy man. Unlike other places in North America, there was a very rich history, basically from that Northern California area to that coastal section of Alaska. This area has produced the richest history of sightings probably in North America, some of the best habitat, I'd argue. So it just mm -hmm. kind of made sense. So um, I'd always heard stories coming out of Alaska, particularly Southeast, and then obviously the Kenai Peninsula. One of the more famous stories that people uh, seem to ask us a lot about, they think that's where we went, is the Port Lock slash Port Chatham area, which is you know kind of known for killer Bigfoots allegedly <laughs> that, that's the narrative at least that's been spun I think there you know there's definitely history sightings and I would refer yeah. people to book by Larry Beans Baxter about the story of, of abandoned Port Chatham or Port Lock uh, and it's it's the same peninsula that we were on it was just that's the tip we were in a different area um, so some of the stories we heard from there I mean yeah. with the Alaskan <clears throat> the Alaskan coastal Sasquatch <clears throat> excuse me essentially <clears throat> What I had heard was I was contacted by a property owner out there uh, in 
about May of 2021. So just about a year before we actually went out there, mm-hmm. um, this gentleman had kind of told me his story. He had a remote property out there that he built as a fishing cabin, just a place to kind of get off the grid, enjoy some fishing. He's a big, big game hunter, big Alaskan fisherman, uh, you know, ex U.S. military. Uh, you know, very, very professional guy has a yeah. very professional um, competent. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the, not the kind of person that needs attention from a topic like Sasquatch. And he essentially, he was originally from New England, so that's how we kind of connected a little bit. Uh, and he told me the story of this property that they were building in this remote place. And as soon as they started building it, and all the subsequent trips, and then in the few years he's owned the place, they had rocks thrown at them and hearing strange roars and whoops and whistles and noises and things thrown into their boat moored out a couple hundred feet out into the water. Uh, Very, you know, very interesting kind of stuff. Never said it was Sasquatch, just kind of claimed, well, this is the weird sort of stuff we've had happening and sent me some of these audio files, which had been looked at by David Ellis of the Olympic Project, who is someone that I hold in high regard when it comes to audio analysis. So that immediately caught my attention. I got to hear some of this audio and it was some of the best alleged audio I've heard when it comes to this topic. Um, very intriguing, you know, is a definitive no, but it, it definitely caught my attention. And he told me a story about, well, you know, the first time we went out there, we, he had bought this land and they had to go out to clear it to basically build the cabin there. I mean, there was nothing but just wilderness. I mean, you, the, the geography of this area for folks that haven't seen the episode, uh, I would recommend you know, checking it out if you do want to see it. But um, it's essentially you have these rugged mountains sticking out thousands of feet, basically hugging the coastline. And along the edges of those mountains, you have this temperate rainforest with Douglas fir trees and and moss and old man's beard, just a type of moss kind of fungus. Very uh, mystical looking environment. It's you know temperate rainforest. It's something so unique. And then you know going up the mountains, you'll have a few thousand feet up snow and mountain goats and other critters. And, and this is all along the coast. And you have all these bays and inlets where sea lions and orcas and, and humpback whales and other critters will basically be interacting with areas where moose and and uh, brown bear and black bear live. So it's a very rugged environment. So uh, their first trip out there, you know, they went out to clear this land, essentially started cutting some of the trees with chainsaws and other equipment, uh, the, the property owner and a friend. And they, heard what they described as some kind of large roar coming from the other side of the bay. And they thought it was sort of unusual. hadn't heard anything like that. The the noise proceeded to kind of get closer to them over time, uh, which is very unusual. Animals usually don't get closer to humans operating heavy machinery like chainsaws. I mean, that's a little bit odd, even for a brown bear. I don't know what, you know, what, (laughs) why would they want to approach somebody making a lot of racket and potentially a threat? So they kept doing you know, what they were doing and they had witnessed the tail end of a large rock the size of a football flying horizontally from the forest into the, the water, I mean, into the bay in, in a way, in an area where there wasn't really a slope where you could argue a, ma- a rock fell off the mountain and, you know, just very interesting stuff. They heard whistles that time as well as a hollow baseball bat type sound. You know, which, I, which some people might call wood knocking, that sort of thing. Uh, and after that first trip, you know, they were a little confused. And this was a story that I found very interesting was that uh, essentially there was a guy that this property owner was contracting to help him bring out some of the lumber. You know, he didn't have a big enough boat to bring out all the necessary stuff to actually build the cabin. So he was contracting somebody uh, from the, the, the community in that area to help him. And he called him and said, hey, you know, 
uh, what's we had experienced some kind of strange stuff out there, and he proceeded to kind of tell them what the story was. And this contracted captain basically said, "Oh, you mean like Sasquatch?" Yeah. <laughs> and and you that's know, the, exactly what you want to hear, right? When you're embarking well, on a new real well, estate so, project. Yeah, well, it's so interesting because the the gentleman Scott, uh, who was the property owner, he kind of thought that he thought this guy was pulling his leg. He's you know, why, why would you say that? You know, this isn't funny. I, I, you think this is a joke? He thought he was kind of making making fun of him in a way. And the guy said, No, no, he's serious. And he told him, you know, who Les Stroud is. Uh, yeah, I mean, Les Stroud, Survivor Man, very notable at the time. You know, yeah, obviously, exactly. he's, he's one of these survivalist guys. Well, this boat captain says, well, I was contracted by the production company, Les Strouds, to take him out here when he filmed his show, Survivor Man. And essentially, we dropped him off in an area. And then you, know, you leave him, you come back however many days later, as is typical with uh, the show. And... Um, they left less and they'd come back a few days later and described him looking kind of disheveled, kind of looking very tired and immediately starts talking about what do you think about the possibility of something like Sasquatch existing? Uh, Liz coming from Les Stroud, which is very interesting. Apparently, uh, and this was the first, well before Les Stroud did his Bigfoot show, Survivor Man this Bigfoot. Is the initiation. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was like. There could be something out there. Season two, I think it was. It was one of season two was the first, you know, when his show was just kind of starting. And mm-hmm. he was asked on some radio show about, hey, wait, have you ever encountered anything out there? And he talked about this. And I remember this. This was like a decade or so ago, well before his show, like I said, with anything to do with Bigfoot. And he described how he was out there and experienced something almost like a ape making ape noises and beating his chest mm-hmm. and making a hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo kind of noises and then running off. Something very unusual, and um, I actually went and rewatched that episode, and I saw a picture of the boat that went, you know, Les had happened to have a shot of him leaving on the kayak, and had shown a shot of this boat from this captain. So I actually then had a picture that Scott had sent me of when they were bringing the lumber out to their to his property, and it was the same boat, same exact name on the side. So that for me was a kind of confirmation to say, well, okay, this could be. It's a kind of legit tie-in. I thought that was interesting. So long story short, I mean, they own, they've own they owned the property for a while now, uh, going on, I think, five years or so. And uh, they've just had a lot of strange stuff happen. Uh, first two seasons were very active. They Pretty much everyone they took out there experienced some kind of activity, and they had a lot of people going out there helping them build the place, including biologists, other big game hunters, and other people who were kind of perplexed. And I'd spoken to one of these guys uh, initially when first getting in touch with the property owner and uh, got to hear his kind of take. And, you know, I said, we got rocks thrown at us kind of thing. You know, they, they couldn't figure out why anything would be doing that out there. Uh, so, yeah, there's just a long history of weird stuff in that particular area. And uh, so almost a year later, we embarked to go out there and spent eight days. I mean, technically nine, but we really just left that ninth morning. So eight kind of days out there we'd spent on this remote property um, just exploring it and trying to document any kind of potential Sasquatch activity or anything unusual and running into tons of other wildlife and other things along the way. Wow. I mean, it it really looks like just a dream, you know, a dream shoot and uh, just seeing the outlife that I was really there with the almost, you know, I think, it's strange, you know, and you've not mentioned 
sightings in relation to this this uh, property owner. I think it's strange the amount of interaction that people get, especially when it's in the form of harassment or a kind of objection to a person's presence. That's what we're talking right. about, isn't it? That how very rare it is for them to actually see anything during that interaction. Now, I mean, when somebody says stones are being thrown out of the trees, out of the bushes, but there is no fauna in North America. They can throw stones at you, really. Not big ones, anyway. No, not you the know. size of the report, and, uh, at least. No. Perhaps if it was so inclined, a raccoon could throw a pebble at you, right? So, but, I mean, uh, I mean, I had, you know, it's, uh, I had one biologist, <clears throat> primate anthropologist I had kind of spoken to suggesting, well, perhaps there were ravens, you know, that were dropping some of these stones and doing this kind of thing. And yeah, sure, I suppose that's possible in some instances, but... Giant yeah, and ravens, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, rocks are quite heavy, which I thought was interesting, but... Yeah, a lot of what they had witnessed was rocks. I mean, there's only really one kind of sighting where somebody had actually seen some sort of a hulking figure, and it was a guy going up to use the outhouse. So there's no bathroom in the cabin. You actually have to go out. And usually, you know, in a, in a typical kind of homesteading or off-the-grid type cabin, you don't have great plumbing, right? So you don't want all the smells the and everything yeah. near the house. So you want to, you want to get your outhouse away enough from the house that smells can stay there and not <laughs> linger back to you. So just off in the woods a little bit. And they've seemed to have a lot of activity with this outhouse, you know, toilets being ripped off and other sorts of things. But one of the gentlemen had gone up there and the guy was apparently a big game hunter, you know, grew up in Alaska, kind of tough guy goes up there and uh, is in the bathroom doing his business and claims he has this very eerie feeling of being watched the whole time while sitting inside this little outhouse and then comes out and sees this kind of hulking figure off into the woods. And this was at night with these glowing red eyes, just kind of looking wow. at him. Uh, yeah, he, he, he loses his balance. He trips. Uh, the ground there is covered in a lot of moss. And I mean, it's a very uh, unique kind of ground covering. If you see in the video, you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about. So it's very easy to fall on that kind of stuff or get caught up. So he trips and falls and then kind of moves 10 feet away. And this figure has essentially moved parallel with him. And it's just, wow. and they did a measurement the next day. That's what he saw. He ran back after that. But, you know, they were like, well, you know, could it have been an owl? Could it have been something else? And the next day they went out and did a recreation. And I mean, it was seven or so feet up where the eyes of this thing were sort of noticed as you know, as best they could with a recreation. So, I mean, is that a definite sighting? I don't know, but I do find it no. interesting with all the yeah. other activity, you know, there's not, there hasn't been more sightings. There's been just every other type of alleged Sasquatch mm -hmm. or reported Sasquatch activity, basically out there, the rock throwing, the whooping, the howling, the, the whistling, the wood knocking, uh, the mischievous kind of stuff. A lot of this stuff has been reported out there, but yeah, can we, you're dealing with a situation where either you have something Sasquatch-like out there or you somehow have a group of feral human beings that are managing to stay yeah. undetected in an area where pretty much every a lot of the big animal easily kill can kill human beings. Yeah. Um, which one becomes slightly. which becomes more <laughs> believable at that point, right? Well, I mean, I would have to say absolutely not for human beings. The temperatures alone would be enough to finish you without being I mean, sighted. You'd have to be yeah, doing fires and homesteads, and you'd be observable at some point. It would be a miserable existence for a human mm. being. I mean, uh, and in Alaska is the last kind of place you want to mess with people. And uh, Almost, you know, vast majority of people in Alaska are armed. Uh, mm. Rifles, shotguns, uh, pistols, very extreme. The wildlife. 
large caliber pistols that, I mean, are absolute that take down moose and bear, um, you know, whether it's a 44 Magnum or 454 Casul or 12 gauge shotguns with slugs. I mean, these are, these, this is the kind of stuff to take down a brown bear or moose. People in Alaska don't mess around. I mean, of all places because of that threat. So for human beings to be out there messing with people who are big game hunters and folks that are, you know, the very hardcore types, it's it's stretching believability a bit. And then the other interesting element of it is when you compare it to some of the First Nations kind of folklore in that area. So you've got the Tlingit people in the parts of Kenai Peninsula and down to Southeast Alaska. A lot of this stuff's covered in Robert Alley's book, but a lot of those folks have their own stories, you know, about hairy men or the Nantenak or whatever. They have a lot, the, the Kushtaka, they have a lot of these sort of folkloric stories. And one of the more interesting recordings I received from Scott, the property owner, was what sounded like a baby crying. I mean, audio from the woods of something sounding like a baby crying. Now, there are animals that can sound like babies crying, but I've yet to be able to find one that matches this to a T. Um, and the weirder part of this is that this type of audio has only ever been heard or recorded when women were around on that property, which has only been a handful of times. And I mean, we're talking coincidence, babies crying only heard when women are there. And majority of the trips out there, it's usually men, you know, that are going out there with friends of the property and they're going to fish and they're going to. Kind of you know, ominous. So that and tying that back to the Native American stories is really interesting because the Tlingit peoples and others, they believe that, these hairy men or these kushtaka kind of otter men as they called them would cry to essentially draw in women or young ones into their direction and these are people that have lived in this area for tens of thousands of years i mean they 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 know what's up what's up i mean essentially with terms of the wildlife and yes they do attribute mystical powers to things like eagles and bears yeah. including the sasquatch you know that's kind of part of their their outlook but we know bears and these other animals are real and i don't think um, that invalidates their their opinion it's no just, it's a perspective it's a perspective you know just like the uh, essence of the creature is right uh, just pl plenty of cultures have different ways of trying to explain certain creatures but that was really interesting because scott was not connected to any of these native peoples or anything like that i mean this is just a, a person who purchased a property out there and built a cabin and experienced what natives have been talking about for thousands of years. And then the interesting parallel there as well was, you know, we were dealing with that situation, um, you know, myself and the Beyond the Trail crew, while Seth Breedlove and the rest of the Small Time Monsters crew were simultaneously in other parts of Alaska doing Seth's film on the trail of Bigfoot, The Last Frontier, which is you know, they interviewed dozens of people, and that's more of, you know, kind of a history of Bigfoot and Sasquatch stories in Alaska from across the state. Yeah. And they talked to a lot of natives and multiple times stories of, well, we were warned by elders to not go into the woods when you'd hear the baby crying. That was especially pertinent for the women. That 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 kind of theme kept popping up with the people they were interviewing who were not connected at all to the story we were dealing with, which to me was mind-blowing, very intriguing, and kind of, I mean confirmative in some ways of some of this sort of stuff i mean is it definitive can we prove it not currently but the patterns are intriguing you experienced it yeah well that they experienced it uh, i i think it's what's very odd about that is these stories from all around the world of hairy men type creatures kidnapping women for or well we don't know breeding but for for sex 
automating something at least anyway and even in china with the year and there's um when i was researching there was this particular post this actually was for men uh, like a, a little monument that was set up it was very old hundreds of years old and it said this is where there used to be a yerin they used to kidnap men female yerin for mating and in other parts of the world south america everywhere there are these stories and even in europe with the woodwolves the hairy men of them kidnapping maidens even the old tapestries and um edifices in the church show these medieval portraits of these tall hairy men trying to kidnap women and it's a strange thing it's almost like a primal thing that oh what would bring women out into the woods at night to check something out but the sound of a baby crying it shows right. intelligence it shows a lot of intelligence in fact as well uh which is spooky but Very we know spooky. i mean for example i mean animals like domestic cats they can and there's been research done on this. The reason why they often will meow or do these sort of sounds that are, you know, very, very high pitched and they're kind of they're ba- baby like they're actually trying. They cats instinctively know how to appeal to our human senses that we hear something small and delicate like that. And that appear appeals to our kind of maternal and paternal instincts. So when a cat wants your attention, there's a reason why it's so cute and crying. And he's, yeah. hey, yeah. feed me, human, meow, meow, you know, so animals like that they can tune into that. So imagine something more intelligent. Now I have a couple of theories about the sort of the stories of the, the women being taken and even children. I mean, throughout many different cultures, you have the ideas of the boogeyman or mm. some kind of a monster or creature that's used to keep people from leaving the area, you know, don't mm. stray too far out. You'll get kidnapped. Caution your tales. Yes. I mean, it, it, maybe it is just a tale, but all you need is that to happen once, you know, maybe one incident happened that gets told by one tribe that lives in a particular geographical area, and that becomes the story. I mean, whenever, you know, maybe there's a Sasquatch sighting or something that is then associated with that. Does that necessarily mean that creature is going to kidnap a woman or a child right away? Not necessarily, but a lot of skeptics will argue that, well, it's just ancestral memories of when we lived with other hominids and other apes that did these sorts of things that, you know, would kill humans, that this is kind of what's been lingering Maybe that's part of it. I mean, I would argue we still live with large hulking ape-like creatures in certain parts of the world. I mean, whether we're talking gorillas or something like possibly Sasquatch, uh, there there are these stories. But, I mean, generally, I don't think that Sasquatch are extremely aggressive. There are exceptional stories, you know, that, but I don't find that to be the rule mm-hmm. um, in terms of aggressive encounters. Because, I mean, if these things were out killing people left and right, I think we would we have probably— know driven them to extinction at this point i mean Mm -hmm. there are aggressive encounters that i've heard and stories you know about stuff like the rock throwing and that Mm. the bluff charging seems sort of an aggressive behavior that maybe is just hey get out of my turf i mean gorillas and other apes do that too and i'm not saying that i think sasquatch is is identical to a gorilla or, or or some sort of chimp clearly not i mean they're clearly somewhere much closer to us than uh most people would probably like to believe or um, you know, I, I don't know exactly what they are, but I just know from my experience from some of these areas how remote they are. Mm. And I mean, anything could really hide in a place like Alaska. I mean, there's still theories that there are populations of woolly mammoth living in. Yeah, I know, absolutely. Do I necessarily think that's true? I mean, I don't know. It's it's one of those things. How how do you really Shows find you out how hard <laughs> it is to to really monitor such areas in a way? I mean, we've had. Um, you know, discoveries of forest populations of elephants pop up all over the world where oh, yeah. they weren't meant to be and they're caught on a trail cam somewhere. And yet still, 
this 11 foot, 12 foot tall creature isn't spotted by the general population in some countries in Asia that are heavily populated. Oh, yeah. But they're not in those areas. Of course, they're not. That's the, the outback, the terrain. We have no reason in, even in this country, to just go wandering off with no direction into the wilderness. Nobody does that, not even in North America. You go Very on the trails, you go on the yeah. paths. There are some specialists who really know their way around. But as you said, if you wander off path, especially in a place like that, in a direction you're unfamiliar with, you may never come back. That's it. I mean, it's in North America is just there's so many places like that. And, and generally speaking, most people I'd, I'd venture to say upwards of 95 percent of people that do go out into the woods, do go out into national parks, national forests, preserves, whatever. I mean, there's so many of these in North America, whether it be in the United States or Canada. Majority of people that go out there, they stick to the trails. They stick to the roads. They're going where literally every other person that day who visited that section of the park is going to go. Very rarely do people say, all right, I'm going to turn off right here and walk a mile this way through the swamp, or I'm going to go up this peak. People do do that. I mean, we run into evidence of people all over, but most of the people that are going off into these more kind of wild directions uh, are, you know, they have a reason to be doing it. They're either hunters or they're, you know, extremely, maybe they're stupid like us. I don't know. Just deciding to, hey, let's, this looks like a good direction. But that's the idea. People, professionals, people that most times know what they're doing and why they're going and right. have the means and the the the, um, the skills at their disposal to get back. Most and people don't have that, not even close. And I think nowadays, especially the way people are sort of herded more to live in urban or suburban environments, especially in North America. I mean, if you look at just the population density, uh, you know, you can take a handful of cities mm-hmm. and that's 50% of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. And you look at you know just the western part of the country, how sparsely populated it is, uh, pretty staggering. And there's all these places between. I mean, northern Maine is an area that there's more moose population than humans. Alaska, there there's more caribou in Alaska than human beings. Mm. So uh, I find it a little bit funny when I hear the argument from people. Well, you know, we would have found it by now. I mean, we've been everywhere. Yeah. Well, yes, we have been everywhere, but now the Google Maps. Yeah, well, now more than ever, we're not living off the land. 100, yeah. 200 years ago, our, even our ancestors were much more in tune with <clears throat> living off the land, farming, that sort of thing. Most people now don't have even remotely the skill sets that their ancestors oh, no. might have had. And oh. so we're we're living in the same areas. <clears throat> yes, there is deforestation and <clears throat> issues with nature going on in a lot of different areas uh, from you know different kind of events that are taking place. But it's still staggering how much, especially in the northern parts of the U.S. Mm. and Canada and Alaska, how much territory there is. I mean, even in a place like Florida, people don't believe me. I was even skeptical before I went to Florida mm. last year in some of the places we went to, like the Everglades and Big Cypress National Preserve. I mean, it's right outside of Miami. You drive an hour outside of Miami, you're in the middle of nowhere. And it's, so it's kind of weird. You know, why would something like a skunk cave possibly exist down here? That doesn't make any sense. Then you realize, well, if you take the Everglades and the Big Cypress Preserve, it's larger than the entire state of Rhode Island, and it's a protected wilderness area that's basically all swamp and, and cypress trees and these prairies. It's actually staggering. And then you realize, well, this area has a high population of black bears, Florida panthers, which are mountain lion subspecies, alligators, snakes, everything you can imagine. I mean, and the corridors you notice, and this is a Bigfoot mapping project. Scott has done a fantastic job with a lot of this stuff, and we use a lot I of this. I love that project. 
Yeah, I'm actually wearing uh, the shirt, one of his shirts. Oh, nice. He does a great job. But he made us custom maps for Florida just to show us the corridors that are documented wildlife corridors where you have between all the urban areas. I mean, Florida's population the past few years has been exploding. Uh, people are moving there in, in large numbers. And that, you know, that's always been the case, but uh, up, upwards of 21 million people at this point. But guess what? They all live along the coasts. They're in Miami. They're in Tampa, Orlando. It's pretty much hugging the coast. You go to the interior, there's nothing. And there's corridors where uh, Florida panthers are moving through. They've been tagged, and we know they're moving from up into the northern parts of the state and down and ba- going in people's yards and basically doing what they want. Because as our human kind of population centers keep expanding, well, the, the nature is sort of pushing up right against it. And uh, you know, some of these sightings, like in the Miami area, for example, of skunk ape, right? You have sightings from the 60s and 70s that when I look at them on a map now, that is, it's a suburb. Basically, in 40 years ago, that was the edge of the swamp. So for something to be there, yes, it could easily be there. Well, guess what? Now that's a suburb. And maybe in 20 years, another three miles west will be all suburbs as well. So that as that environment, as we keep expanding into habitat. So uh, that's what I think is really interesting when it comes to this topic, especially people say, well, you know, something like that couldn't really exist in certain areas and up and down the Appalachian Mountains, you know, from northern Georgia to my neck of the woods up here in New Hampshire, New England, uh, you know, there's a ton of sightings and a ton of activity along that sort of corridor. And that's some of the best habitat on the East Coast mm. because of the, the, well, you know, the terrain. Mention, and all the that isolation stuff. in that terrain, that's available. The isolation that is available to any such creature that want to hide out it would not have to be seen at any point. And people like yourself hiking into those mountains, they wouldn't see it. They wouldn't have to see it. And you would assume that if it's familiar with its terrain and has the regular um, adaptations that most wild animals have, it'd be aware of you before you even got there, which is often the case. And it's that's amazing to me. You mentioned that point. And I think people really don't get just how much of the world is unexplored by foot. Yeah. Plane's a different story. Yeah, I mean, you can see a place by an airplane, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you can you can map it out and whatever, but yeah. um, I mean, people are finding stuff all the time that they didn't even know were there just from you know actually surveying an area on foot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to get a little bit different now that we can map stuff out with the lidar and a lot of this sort of mm-hmm. uh, technology that lets you sort of map out an area a little more efficiently. But in the past, That's very exciting. Equipment. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely exciting. I mean, it's just. There's, like I said, look at the population density maps, look at areas where there's, you know, a map for North America called Nobody Lives Here. Somebody put together a map of areas where there's no, low population density and you'll be shocked. I mean, uh, look at Canada as a country. This is actually really interesting where a vast majority of the Canadian population basically lives in five cities, mm. five or six, all of urban areas in Canada, that's almost 80% of the population. And guess what? All those people also live within an hour of the U.S. border. As I was going to say, and all of them on the border of the United States. It's like 50% of Canada's population yeah. lives in the Toronto kind of area. Yeah. And once you go north, and even Ontario, there's nothing. I just watched a video last night of a guy doing a uh, kayaking trip or a canoe trip on a, on a, a lake, Lake Nipigon in northern Ontario, which is kind of considered to be a great lake. Some of the terrain he was in, I mean, there's nobody out there at all because everyone lives a few hours south in Toronto and nobody ever really goes up there. 
so Canada is just ridiculous in terms of the territory and the space out there and the, the, the low population density. I mean, I think there are only 30 plus million Canadians uh, and the Canada is larger than the U.S. Yeah. So it's pretty staggering. But I think people who just don't spend time out there really don't know about how remote some of these areas still oh. are. And it's not presented to them. It's just no. generally not presented to them, even on some of the, the wildlife documentaries and even on some of the ecological things you watch these days. I know people say a lot of times we've got a population overpopulation problem, but I think we've got a, a population density problem, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. That's I mean, it's issue. everyone's in stacked yeah. up in these little areas. And, and yeah. like I said, if you look at from the Midwest, basically to, uh, you know, the coastal Pacific mm. Northwest and West Coast, that area in between there where you've got a ton of these different states, there's the population there is mm. extremely sparse. And you, yeah. yes, you have a lot of deserts and those sorts of things. We have the Rocky Mountains and all these other places in between and up and down the Appalachians, like I said. I mean, obviously, the East Coast of the U.S. is the most densely populated, but you can go uh, you know, to Washington, D.C. and then drive a few hours west to West oh, Virginia wow. and be in the Monongahela National Forest and be in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Not that far away, but most people are not going out there. I mean, you do have enthusiasts, but there's less people now living closer to the land and actually making a living off the land. You know, most people that do go out into the woods are doing it for enthusi enthusiasm purposes, hiking, backpacking, hunting, that sort of thing. They're not you know, a mountain man that's making his, his, his way west and trapping for a living, mm. that sort of thing. That doesn't exist anymore, really. So uh, I no. just think these areas have become almost more wild. I mean, I know even in a place like New England, uh, for example, in New Hampshire, 200 years ago, this whole area was very clear cut. I mean, it was trees were taken down. There was a lot of farmland, a lot of sheep herding sort of going on. And now, you know, I've had areas that are kind of my research. One of them in particular is a research area where there's been a history of activity. I've traced it back 200 years ago was basically that entire forest that's now thousands of acres of protected land was somebody's farm, somebody's wow. field. And now it's an environment that supports moose, black bear, white-tailed deer, bobcat, every other large type of animal in the area. 200 years ago, this was would have been sheep paradise and now it's so they could be moving back into the if, if, moose, if moose and bear can move in i think you could have the occasional sasquatch moving through an area or establishing some sort of residency and especially in a place like mm -hmm. new england where it's just a lot of forest and the northern parts i was when i visited yeah. i didn't expect to see that in um in maine or Oh yeah, any, well, New Hampshire, Maine, any of those places really that we drove through, and I just thought, wow, even Vermont, which has a lot of farmland. Yeah, more farmland um, than Maine and New Hampshire, but I mean, that, these are smaller states relatively. I mean, Maine's pretty big, but then you look at a place like Alaska that's never had that happen, where it's never been clear cut. It's these areas have essentially we've got old growth forests, and you know, there's areas along the coastline. Even in the place we were in, there was human presence there about 100 years ago and there was logging going on you can still see some remnants of that but i mean these people barely even put a dent into tapping into that you know that that ecosystem and now how it's essentially really bounced back and nobody lives out there full time you have communities like the port chatham and other ones that simply went extinct all up and down the alaskan coastline because the, the reasons they were out there usually was typically hunting, fishing, working off the land and harvesting those resources as there was a le less of a demand for that. You know, people say, well, this is a hard life. I can go get a job working for an oil company in Anchorage yeah, and make product a lot of money. Dried up, basically. Or and the so value that, of you know, dried up. 
Right. Um, so they, they left and these communities went extinct. And what happened? Nature within a couple decades already had completely reclaimed all these areas. You'll maybe see a few skeletal remains of uh, huts or uh, cabins and buildings in some of these communities. But it's just it's very different. It happens and it happens everywhere. And it was a little off point in a way. Actually, I was watching a little documentary the other day um, on Petra in Jordan, the wonderful Nabataean city that's carved into the rocks in the middle yep. of a desert. And they were talking about why on earth was this city here? Why was this like a big, rich city in the middle of the desert? They discovered all these deep underwater subterranean water stores that they basically collected uh, i think there's two weeks of rain or every year or every two years they collected all these water stores underground and hid it and it was a, a route on the silk road from the west to the east right. so they stopped there they watered their camels they charged the money and then the silk road route changed gone and, and that's kind of what happens uh, all the time and let's um Coming away from Alaska and all that stuff, I'd be very, very interested to know your opinions on the identity, the taxonomic identity of Bigfoot-like creatures, and if you think there's more than one type of species. So, um, not to talk about my own thing, but in a recent book, I talked about not my own theory, but expanding on a theory of you know the man-ape type, like Bigfoot. With a wild man type like the Almasti, uh, yeah, the relic ape type like the skunk ape and the yeti and little foot for this sort of uh, proto pygmy or the the diminutive, you know, um, upright hominid. What, what what are your thoughts on on that subject on identity of of the North American Sasquatch first of all and are there other types? Yeah, I mean it's really interesting. Uh, something obviously, us as researchers, we toil with a lot. I mean, you just end up thinking about it a lot because you do hear a difference in reports in some certain areas. I think generally in North America, probably we're dealing with the same type of creature. I could totally see regional adaptations. I mean, you have silverback gorillas that live in higher elevations compared to lowland gorillas. I mean, they're essentially the same animal, but there may be some physical differences. I think orangutans exhibit this more than other great apes in that they there's some very different kind of subspecies, I believe, that they have, you know, even their facial structures look a little bit different, just geographically different. And, uh, you know, when it comes to alleged Sasquatch sightings, there's a lot of different types of descriptions that are given, some more ape-like, some more human-like. I mean, it runs the gamut. If we're, you know, to take some credible ones and kind of look at those, I could imagine maybe a genetic diversity. I mean, lots of people look very differently, even from the same ethnic groups or mm. uh, racial groups, whatever. I mean, people look can look drastically different, even though, hey, that, that person's my brother, but mm. they may look very, very uh, physically different. So maybe there's a little bit more of that compared to other species. I mean, uh, you look at a mountain lion, I mean, most mountain lions are going to look very similar. They're not mm. going to be one that's, you know, hugely different from another one. So I think primates seem to exhibit more uh, kind of diversity in, in how they look. And that's certainly the case with certain chimps and other social, other animals. Yeah. social animals. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it is about it, but um, you know, it's just, it's very interesting. Obviously people that are into anthropology and primatology are probably more keen on that. But uh, I think in North, generally North America, it's probably the same type of creature, but something in the South, like the skunk ape mm. seems to be a little bit shorter in stature at, at some points, you know, a, uh, People claiming they see things 10 plus feet. I mean, it, to me, it even stretches believability anywhere. 10 plus feet. I think people are very bad judges of distance yeah. and size. 
Um, so I think a lot of these sightings where people say they definitely saw a 12 footer, I mean, that's arguable, you know, I, I'd say everything about seven foot looks huge. Yeah. It, yeah. Pushing eight, eight or nine feet is already pretty astronomical. I mean, mm. it, it's a, a funny example is, you know, here in, in North America, we have a store called the Home Depot and they'll send, sell, you know, it's like a hardware kind of store and they sell all these sorts of Halloween and Christmas decorations. Mm. And this past fall I was there and they had a 12 foot skeleton that you could get that had glowing eyes that you'd put up in your yard. And it's 12 feet. I mean, it was staggeringly huge. And you say, somebody saying they saw this, you know, in rural Alabama or mm. in Maine, I mean, that is pushing the believability, yeah. in my opinion, at least. I just think people are terrible judges of uh, size, especially in a heated, maybe emotional moment. So um, I think this happens with Lake Monster stories. A lot of times, a lot. I mean, the sizes get blown out of proportion. But you get to a hundred feet, you know, we're really talking. Like, uh... <laughs> right, and then you'll see, you know, something like a twelve-foot alligator or a fourteen-foot-long saltwater crocodile, and you know, somebody maybe in a heated moment would see it in a certain light and say, "Oh, this thing was twenty-five feet long." Well, hey, forty take feet off. is huge. Fourteen is is monstrous. Yeah. yeah. So I think people would just kind of we, we tend to do that. Um, that's something you'd have to look into more with in terms of, you know, eyewitnesses and, and certain details. This happens with, you know, not just mystery creatures, but details are exaggerating court cases. You know, people, lawyers can bring certain details out of people maybe to a desired effect, right? So I think that's on the eyewitnesses. That's not to discredit them. It's just, I think, in those moments, hard to judge. So I think taking it back to kind of the North American Sasquatch, I think it's generally the same creature, just different maybe regional adaptations. I mean, if you live in a swamp like Big Cypress National Preserve, I think you're gonna have different needs than something that lives in uh, the Rocky Mountains of Colorado and the kind of terrain you're dealing with and the weather and that sort of thing. Um, when we get to Asia, I think it gets really interesting because you have such a history of these discoveries, obviously things like the Orang Pendek, and kind of analogous to that area, the sightings of the Orang Pendek, and then of course the Homo floresiensis, and the sort of the the proto pygmy hobbit type things that have been found out there. The just those stories. It seems interesting that that's a discovery that was made in an area where they have reports of a smaller Bigfoot-like creature, whereas in areas like the Caucasus and into parts of Russia and Central Asia, you have this you know, the Denisovans and all those other discoveries in areas where there's a long history of sightings that are different than in north america i mean you have stories of more you know, creatures using tools clubs uh, kind of neanderthal -like clothes, sometimes. Yeah. yeah i mean i could i could believe in areas like that that maybe up until a few thousand years ago even you had pockets of neanderthals that mm. had survived and and you know there, there may be other creatures in those areas as well there seems to be more near human than sort of uh, the North American kind of Sasquatch, which I find is even in the Balkans in Eastern Europe, you know, an area that I'm um, ethnically from. I've looked into a lot of the stories, and there are older stories which fit more in line with the wood woes of that of you know, different parts of Central and Western Europe, where it's they're almost like wild people, right? And they they would sleep in the barn at night, and then you'd be coming out to feed horses, and you'd be startled by this female hairy creature that uh, you know seemed to try to communicate with you that seems very different than the purported sasquatch in north america type stories or even something in like australia with the yaoi it seems very much much yeah. more similar to something sasquatch like than in parts of asia and perhaps uh, you know in, into eastern europe and parts of russia so i think the almas the almasti maybe something entirely different uh, you know whether or not those things still exist i mean there are claims to this day one of my favorite stories 
uh, from uh, when I was younger and looking into a lot of this stuff was during the Russian Civil War, where you had, you know, the Red Army against the White Army and parts of the Caucasus. You know, there was a story apparently told by some white army Russian soldiers that came upon a cave that had some sort of noises coming out. And they thought, oh, this is where the Red Army is hiding out. You know, let's get ready. And some kind of a hairy man-like creature comes charging out of the cave and they shoot it and dispatch it and bury it under rocks. Very intriguing story. Um, oh, there's tons of stories like that. Yeah, yeah fantastic it, ones. It's very interesting. I mean, and what what kind of behavior that is, I don't know. But these are the same areas that you know, 100, 100 years after the Russian Civil War, in the 2010s and up into the modern day, people are discovering things like the Denisovans in, ver- in caves, mm-hmm. just like ones that this story of a creature being killed at were. So uh, it's it's an area that's rich with that history. It's something I would love to look more into. I mean, I think uh, political instabilities aside, you know, those areas are, are, are tough to get into. But then again, there are many places in the world, uh, you know, like the Vietnam area with the Vietnam War and all the stories of the rock apes. Oh, the rock apes, yeah. Very fascinating. And the discoveries of caves in parts of Thailand and Laos that are some of the largest on planet Earth. I mean, caves that have, I think Song Dun is one of them where they have its own ecosystem basically within the cave and it wasn't discovered till what 10 years ago i mean that is just insane an area that people have been bombing (laughs) and genocides for for decades and there's still things to be discovered in an area where you think you know you go to a country like vietnam or thailand and the hugely dense population centers but then you go up into the mountains and it's a different story entirely and it's the same everywhere alex it's the same yeah, it really it's is. even the same in the uk when i discovered back in 2017 that only 6.8 percent of the entire landmass of the uk was urban sprawl that included um it included uh rural populations and roads all the motorways as well 6.8 percent of the entire country not, I yeah. thought this is the UK. This is like 70 million people almost on this, right. not a small island, but a small landmass. Right, compared to even mainland Europe. Yeah, mainland Europe, and there, and yet something like Scotland have 1.9 percent urban sprawl, 4.6 in Wales, and so on and so forth. England, being the most populated, was at the sure. least about 10.6 percent, but that's still a tiny amount, and everything else. It's just it's forests and hills and mountains and farmland, right? And nobody's walking about the place. Nobody's there. Not, it's not just many open people space. at all. Yeah. And this is this kind of country, which is you know a very it's like a cartographer's wet dream. It's very well explored. Sure. We really know what's going on, and yet you go to the rest of the world or somewhere like the United States. I mean, somebody mentioned not too long ago that in the Pacific Northwest and even in the the forest stretching up there into to Washington and, and so on and so forth. Up that, that chain that you spoke about, yeah. airliners, like jumbo jets have gone missing there. Past <laughs> and they've not never been found. found. <laughs> How can it's you miss? Wild. Yeah, then, I mean. This is what we're talking about, that kind of space. I think that goes to what I was saying, and just about how how we're moving away from these areas. We're we're centralizing more in certain urban areas, and a country like the United States. I mean, obviously, it's it's a very kind of advanced country. Uh, people like to think that we control everything, or that we are in complete control of the environment, and it just doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, there's still so many places that are like a wild west frontier out here, and then you have countries. Like Thailand and, and Vietnam and Laos that I had mentioned, you know, other countries, Southeast Asia, even parts of Africa, where you've had 
people living there for thousands upon thousands of years, but certain areas just haven't been developed. You had yeah. different em- different empires come through, different conflicts, mm-hmm. and there are still species in places like Vietnam, which you know was carpet bombed to insane proportions mm-hmm. during the Vietnam Wars. And that whole area, you know, during that period, there's still species being discovered out there to this day. I mean that, and we're talking, you know, fifty plus years after some of these conflicts have ended. <laughs> I mean that's just unbelievable, actually, if you think about it. Mm. I think it just goes to show how, if you look at the world, how much of, how much of it is ocean is just mind blowing. But but that yeah, yeah. comparing even just landmass and then how much of it is actually still uh, unexplored. And I mean, I, recently I was I learned about this story from South America, Venezuela, and some of these the largest waterfall in the world and stories of dinosaur like creatures being seen in some of these areas. And, you know, these plateaus up there that are the inspirations for oh, stories yeah. like the lost, the lost world. world. Yeah. Sir Arthur oh, yeah. Conan Doyle and, and everything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's so many of these places and, and guess what a place like Venezuela, you know, is it easy to get to politically or uh, you go through Colombia, you deal with FARC rebels that will kidnap mm-hmm. you and hold you ransom. Is it easy to get into these areas? Oh, I know. Two pale faces like us, we'd be a valuable commodity in some of those rebel areas for sure, you know, to Europeans. I mean, even, even South Africa, which is, you know, a country near and dear to me, I was born there. And, uh, you know, I've, I've in the past year or so come in contact with Gareth Patterson and talking mm-hmm. about the elephants of Nizna and, and the Otang. And yeah, okay, I've actually yeah. gotten three or four separate people after interviewing Gareth, one just about a month ago. Some people telling me their stories of seeing Bigfoot-like creatures in South Africa, not knowing any cultural significance to it, mm-hmm. until you know they basically heard uh, of about Gareth Patterson, and then they were and I, 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 there was actually two of them that I pointed to Gareth. They weren't aware of him, and I said, "Hey, you should send your report to this guy. He's actually down the ground in there." There's no scene there. I mean, there's apart it really from him, a few others, and he's incidentally. <clears throat> In this subject, you know, he's he's a lion guy, he's an elephant guy, he's yeah. there for the wildlife, he's not there it's for amazing. Bigfoot. Oh, it's and incredible! That, so, it's amazing. there's also a lot of littlefoot sightings in, well, yes. in the central part of Africa, like the Agogwe and right, Punta Kari. I think that's and these are the areas you have those pygmy tribes and other groups of humans that have adapted. Very interesting. Like, if you just look at let's say the Maasai people. I mean, how their stature is enormous, right? These are folks that are known for winning running tournaments around the world. Yet you you go a few countries away into parts of the Congo and you have these groups of people that are, you know, extremely short in stature. Yeah, very interesting. And then South Africa is interesting because you have such a history of the Australopithecines and all these different sort of near human creatures that we found evidence of, at least, that uh, lived I mean, we guess thousands of years ago, millions of years ago in those areas, but there still are sightings of people describing mm. similar creatures. And I think that that's just interesting, especially when we talked about earlier with the orang pendek and the fact that oh, yeah. near near where that's seen, that's where the homo floriensis. I mean, how far can you stretch some of the coincidences? How many coincidences <laughs> do you need? Yeah, I mean, coincidence is not evidence. We know that, no, but it's, yeah. it's a smoking gun. It's very and, uh, interesting. I think it, it leads to, if you have coincidences like that that keep popping up, I think it should lead to some inquiry or saying, hey, maybe this is worth looking into because, yeah, we can just write it off as a coincidence. But, hey, imagine if it's not. Why, why not look into it? So, 
Yeah, and once you kind of go down that path and start looking into it, it's uh, it's pretty interesting places around the world. And the people, and I, people, they kind of hear this, and I, I've talked to folks who say, well, you know, you, th- these things are being seen around the world. That almost makes it seem less credible. Mm-hmm. Um, it just means that it's some kind of a figment of our cultural imaginations. Well, I mean, look at typically the areas where a lot of these sightings are coming from. Mm-hmm. They're very similar. They're remote. They're areas that are not really populated that's that seems to be the biggest consistency which is intriguing i mean you'd expect if it was some sort of an ancestral or a cultural projection that every type of human civilization puts out why are we not experiencing that and you why know, would in, we in why brooklyn we individually separately Kuala Lumpur, thousands of years and language and barriers and mountains and everything in between we can't get to each other until recent times we just can't we can't share those stories mostly Far yeah. from perhaps the big empires moving around, right? And yet, how would we? How would the Australians have the same stories, uh, similar stories to the the North American First Nations tribes? And how would they have similar stories to the, the tribes in South Africa, and so on and so forth? And the Europeans and the Chinese, and it stretches credulity. Yeah, and it really does. I mean, it becomes more of a stretch. Uh, more laughable, in fact, of a theory to propose that we all just made it up at the same time with the same details and same behaviors, then there is something that we have in common around the world, which is all oh, these undiscovered. I, I'm calling them hairy humanoids, not hominids, because I don't really know what they are. I love exactly. the term so, uh, man beast anthropoids. Okay. It's a bit of a, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's redundant, but uh, researcher John. John Horrigan from the 90s, he got out of the, the game before. He used to, you know, he's kind of given a lot of me his, his a lot of his files I've received in a lot of his tracks, and he used to call them man-beast anthropoids, and I just thought that was kind of a fun one. Awesome. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, you look at nowadays, obviously, with globalization and the ubiquity of culture around the world, whether it be American culture or, you know, anything kind of analogous, just the, the idea, you know, stuff like Harry and the Hendersons and other Bigfoot cultural icons that can be viewed anywhere, but okay. yeah. don't seem to have the same kind of traction as maybe they do in parts of North America mm-hmm. or, you know, in South Africa. Or they don't, you know, people aren't seeing Harry and the Hendersons, and that's the reason why they're imagining an ape-like ape creature yeah. in the woods. I mean, maybe that's partially part of it. I mean, law enforcement, they do have a pop culture effect where you know based off something that's really popular especially with usa i suppose you know there yeah. is that that effect where people are familiar with what's happening there you sure. know there's but it's people, not you know, to the people level in the shit mountains with a satellite dish in the valley right watching golden girls you know so, so. i mean it's interesting because if you look at say the ufo topic that's definitely more culturally accepted and and more widely known than anything Bigfoot or mystery hominids, yeah. hominoids. It's very, you know, people know, <coughs> excuse me, people know more about the UFO topic. And you look at the way the media has treated it, it's been very interesting. And there's been this sort of slow roll to kind of, obviously the government's been involved in, in some levels, you know, and maybe that has to do with raising defense budgets. <laughs> we can speculate why there's a sort of talk about UFOs, but given the kind of craziness of the modern era and the, how quickly the news cycles and everything work, that hasn't really picked up as much traction. I mean, if somebody came out tomorrow and said, UFOs are real, aliens are real, I mean, I wouldn't even be surprised if it doesn't make the front page. It's mm. going to be the latest Twitter scandal or something else. I mean, just just this past week, basically, it's come out that 
you know, the, the JFK, one of the biggest conspiracies of all time, essentially was killed by the government. I mean, something a lot of which people seems that way. Anyway, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, um, I mean, it's not it's not officially yeah. that way, but you think it's, that would be it's bigger. It's inferred news. by omission. Yeah, and you'd think that would be bigger news, but it's not even the front page because there's so many other things that are front and center. So if, if Sasquatch tomorrow would be discovered or admitted by some sort of institution, I don't know if it would be this gigantic earth-shattering news that a lot of people in the community I tend agree to think. With you. Yeah. I think it would be one of those, oh, it's a cool science story, and then five minutes later they're already talking about something else because that's happening with the UFO topic, which well, if you I, talk I, to I a lot of people, yeah. And I don't think um, I don't think it's as big and as popular as it with everybody else as it is with us. No, I don't think that's it's for as sure. Big as we think it is worldwide, and we're sort of in a slight echo chamber in a way. We definitely are, yeah. Because you know that that's a subject that we're interested in. But I mean, if we were uh, ghost hunters or UFO ufologists in some way, we'd both be a lot more popular to start with. Those and, are, yeah, uh, we might even make some money from it, you know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, but it's it's one of those things. I think it would be amazing. I do still believe that at one point in the near future, you know, the discovery of the Sasquatch will be <clears throat> viewed in the same way as you know, the giant squid is viewed now. That was once the Kraken of old, right? Right. You can go to a museum and see a specimen, and if you go to the right museum, and like, oh, giant squid, cool, cool, and on you go, and. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think so. I, I think it would. But I, I just think a lot of people think it would be this earth shattering kind of stop mm. everything. Bigfoot's real. I think no most, people would, yeah. most people wouldn't care. <laughs> most people day to day, especially the way folks are now and yeah. minds controlled by the likes of TikTok and social media. I don't yeah. think they would. Most TikTok people wouldn't people. care. Sure. Most people would, would probably be like, oh, I thought that was already a thing. You know, that, I thought that already existed. So I think it would be interesting. But I do see a lot of parallels with the ufo topic and if you talk to folks in that sort of world hmm. they have the same frustrations perhaps that uh, people into bigfoot and obviously we all think our stuff is the coolest and and guess hmm. what bigfoot being real is the is is way more interesting than ufos being proven real well guess what the ufo person thinks hmm. exactly vice versa so uh, it's the eye of the beholder i suppose but um, something is going to happen with Sasquatch, but I don't know if it'll be you know this earth-shattering thing. And then it'll be a yeah. slow, slow roll where it'll be admitted. Okay, well we know Bigfoots are in the Olympic Peninsula, yeah. and then that's that's where you know they're not going to admit. Okay, just because Bigfoots have been discovered in Alaska, we're not just going to close down all every state park and national forest and say they're in Florida and Michigan. We're going to say nope, they're they're here till we can figure out if that does happen. Will it happen? You I just have more. I mean. Governments these days, anyway, are looking for more wildlife areas to protect. It would be in their interest with the current paradigm of um, um, ecological activism, for instance, being popular even within governments. And uh, how can I put it? I'm all for saving the planet, but sometimes I wonder about the impetus of the, the, the things for us to uh, accept to do that. Right. I think it would be in their interest to find Sasquatch to be real and to protect the areas in which it resides from logging, from pollution, from everything else that man-made, um, how can I put it, uh, from the lives that man leads, right. <laughs> the modern industrial lives that man leads, I uh, can impact, uh, you know, from that environment. So I, I think that's all fine. I know a lot of people say, 
the government don't want us to know that they're there or they're hiding it from us because of logging and X, Y, and Z. I, I don't believe that. I think it would be yeah, in their either. interest to find it and to impose protections for whatever reason. And so that's sort of out of bounds. I, I just simply think we haven't found it because nobody's really looking. Very few people are actually <laughs> legitimately looking. And, and I think people, they they love a grand conspiracy. I mean, who doesn't like a, you know, a plot of any popular show, whether it be Yellowstone or or anything else. There's so many different plots and conspiracies and things that go on. And that, that interests the mind because it gets us wondering, well, who's behind this attack? Who's this? You know, that's just part of our how we're hardwired. So the idea that the government is covering up Sasquatch is absolutely, it's a sexy idea, right? Is that necessarily the truth? I mean, generally, if you, <laughs> not to go kind of on a government sort of spiel, but having known people that have worked in federal and other government administrations, they'll tell you, you know, government, they kind of want to take the easy way out a lot of ways. You know, they're, they're, they have job security. They're not putting their, their butts on the line necessarily, you know, like Freedom of Information Acts are a great one here in the U.S. where you can get that sort of thing. And um, I've been told by people that have looked into getting them that, you know, they'll drag their feet routinely uh, because it's not a priority. You know, this guy wants information about some person that went missing or some kind of Bigfoot related incident that happened. Oh, boy. And then they may it's not get mostly that. mostly to do with the number of requests. Yeah, they might not get that file till a year or two later. Yeah, but I mean, you think about also like getting your driver's license or something. It's usually a, people dread the idea of going to the DMV here because it's. Yeah, the, the the workers are usually incompetent, and uh, you know they're not really paid to care or to put the extra effort in. So, you see some of that sort of stuff, and uh, middle management, and the idea that oh, something like Bigfoot seems goofy. The way the media treats it, like a joke for the most part. So, why would you really need to send in black helicopters to get somebody when they've seen a Bigfoot? I mean, that just seems like a massive expenditure of resources for very little fact uh but i think people people like that idea you know that's why there's ideas like bluff creek massacres and and all this sort of conspiratorial mm. thinking and um you know that doesn't mean conspiracies don't exist of course no, there are they always plots exist. but yeah. i think when the more grandiose they get the the less likely they are to be because my way. my theory on that whole thing is that knowing governments and the the way they work in many ways they're not capable of hiding something like that it's just not capable. The administration doesn't work well enough to keep such a secret. Uh, there are too many interested parties. And, you know, the news cycle would be too good. Black helicopters yeah. thing, as you say, it's interesting. It's funny. It's great for clicks. Um, but generally speaking, I think most of the time people need content and it makes... You know, makes for good reading. Yeah, you know, well, on the internet, exciting. it's great. I mean, it's like the story of the giant of Kandahar. That's a big mm. one that's always talked about. And it just, I mean, and I've talked to folks through in the military that say that, you know, the way that would play out would be extremely dubious. I mean, are there black ops? Are there, obviously, there's tons of government technology that we're not privy to, especially in the United States. Mm. I mean, a lot of the UFOs and sort of that, the, the modern oh, UFO yeah. craze yeah. was definitely... Secret technology. I mean, look at the stakes. It was the Cold War with the Soviets and all this just sort of stuff. Just look at the stealth bomber. How similar yeah. is that to loads of early UFO sightings? Exactly. So I think that is absolutely part of it. Um, and uh, But people like a good story, for sure. I mean, that doesn't mean that government is your friend. That's not at all yeah. what I'm saying. I'm just saying I think a lot of times it may just be 
you, you hear stories of people that have worked for the Forest Service or, or mm-hmm. state parks that are interested in the Bigfoot topic, and they immediately get kind of squashed by somebody. It's a more administrative position saying, oh, you're not looking into that silly crap. You know, put that sort of thing away. And I've heard this from folks that have worked in, uh, you know, state park kind of systems. And yeah. there's people that may have unofficially be looking into some of this stuff mm-hmm. and keep official reports. And I think that's really interesting. And this is something like uh, Micah Hanks and Mark Marcel and some of these guys that I that I'm friends with. They they are really interested in that aspect of it because. Mm-hmm. They're saying, well, hey, there was somebody on the federal government payroll or the state park payroll that was actually documenting reports of sightings. So if you can get that sort of stuff, get Freedom of Information Act about it, it it creates a timeline where you can say there's a history. There is a precedent for Bigfoot type things going on. And and here's some more of the history. You're filling in the holes saying, yes, there were, uh, you know, somebody like John Mainzinski, who's a worked for uh, federal government and was officially kind of looking into Bigfoot reports. So uh, it's just interesting. I think it's something worth looking into. Um, Absolutely. absolutely. It's not the field. It's not necessarily, you know, being out in the field. Some other people have that role. I think people that are digging through the archives in the trenches are doing fantastic work. And I've, I've had the fortune of coming into contact with a bunch of them recently and hearing the work they're doing, I think is extremely important because it's setting that timeline up. It's reinforcing and creating a precedent for. Yeah, we need that. We need that. It's even for mapping, this is mentioned to your friend there with the mapping project, which is fantastic. Yeah. This really adds to that that body of information that you and I can log on and have a look at. And if we're planning some sort of expedition, and anybody can map can, out an area yeah. that we want to to go to, or anybody can. And that's, I mean, that's the collectivism um, that I kind of like to see more of in. The big community, and I think it's starting to happen. Actually, yeah. there seems to be less fighting and more separate individuals coming together on certain projects, like the Small Town Monsters Project, and other people like the Olympic Project and Cliff Bob and all these guys that get involved with you guys. That that's really helpful. There seems to be a sort of a, I don't want to say a band of brothers because it's not all guys, but you know that that sort of I, I element is is forming, and I I like that. Whereas I before, think you find your tribe kind of thing. You know, you maybe find people that I think are on that are on the right track because there's a lot of people who are not, in my opinion, on the right track and who are just doing you know what a a network maybe wants them to do yeah. and are you know not doing a disservice to the topic Mm. Um, but then there are those that are really in the trenches and they may be doing something completely different than what you're doing but guess Mm. what they're they're talking about their local area you know whether it be cliff or somebody else that focus that hyper focuses on a specific area i think that's incredible because that gives me you know the opportunity to then go visit them or go to an area that i know nothing about that i'm not going to assume i know the history and the geography and the sightings and I can say, well, can you point me to any sightings that are in this fashion, you know, that have had these kinds of behaviors and they can tell me exactly where to go and we can collaborate and work with each other like that, which I think is great. Definitely need more of it. I think it's starting a little bit, but, um, you know, I would just caution people, definitely be careful and, and you know, choose your friends wisely for sure, because mm. there are those that uh, maybe don't have the the truth in um in yeah, regard mercenary, to mercenary characters in every walk of life, and <laughs> yes. there's some here as well. So, and it's not—it's not just these yeah. topics. It's—I mean, I—I yeah. I have other yeah. hobbies and passions, and mm. the divisions are the same everywhere. It's just a human yeah. kind of thing. I mean, you look at just politically. Obviously, that's all these things were into our microcosms of a larger societal kind of situation. So, uh, it's nothing I mean, new. 
Yeah, nothing, nothing new, nothing old. It'll always be that way unless we all get beamed into AI tomorrow and have a collective consciousness. But uh, <laughs> that, that may be on the horizon. Oh, no. <laughs> now we're, see, we're seeing artists start to take a stand against uh, some of the AI-created art now. I've seen a lot of uh, folks that are creatives that are, you know, uh, putting their kind of foot down saying this is really devaluing what we do and, and i mean i couldn't i obviously i agree you know, i think i'm it's, with you i'm with you what fucks me about it, just, it and i i love cryptid art sorry to jump in there but i love cryptid art and you know people like sam sheeran people like brett manning uh my own uh some of my own friends here as well doing great great art and what makes it what's really sad these days about when something happens that you didn't want to happen you expected it would be bland and beige and lifeless and soulless and then it comes out and it is exactly as you expected it to be lifeless and soulless and bland and there's a lot of lock, lock, lock monsters sort of AI, AI art at the moment as well and yeah. look at it I'm just like this you've got it and everybody's posting it everywhere oh sure. this is you know hey just thought I dropped this here hope the group likes this I thought the group might like this <laughs> and then when the group doesn't like this right it creates something, brings something, but this is this is what a computer thinks. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be the battle of the century, I think, as as time yeah. progresses. We're going to be dealing with well, it more and more. We just we just keep buying art, basically, and championing artists. That's it. The people that that created from their souls, not somebody that sort of uh, you know took sort of a couple of. Uh, hundred thousand or two three seven million images and splice something together right use an algorithm to put it together yeah i think it's just it's yeah. interesting just in general society i think we're going to have a lot of different things that we're going to be struggling against like that uh, i think yeah. arts obviously it's coming to a head but it's going to be interesting i mean in some ways it'll be interesting i mean the technology is going to catch up to certain cryptid creatures perhaps yeah, yeah. But, uh, i want a drone swarm alex I want a drone swarm. I hear the <laughs> Chinese too. are using drone swarms to oppress people, and I want right. one to, to. I want one to look into the forest and oh, me too. these tiny. You must have seen them. They're about sort of oh, yeah. locust-sized. Some some of them are smaller. And they head off in a swarm, film everything. Drone like, swarm oh. with thermal technology. I mean, that uh, like I said, the technology really will catch up to something like a Sasquatch. So, um, I think it's it's a matter of time, but. Again, it's kind of a double-edged sword kind of mm. thing because there's great uses, but obviously, I mean, like with the inventor of dynamite and any kind of yeah. thing that's created great change, it obviously gets put into a usage that's not the best. Uh, that's no, just, well, that's always yeah. the way. Yeah, but that's you know, always like case. twenty, thirty researchers <clears throat> every weekend heading into the forest with their drone swarm. <laughs> it's not so great for the animals, right? Right. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. But um, right now at the beginning, before it becomes popular, I would really like a drone swarm. Um, listen, thank you so much for coming on. It's always amazing and awesome. I've, I've literally been watching your your progress through this year, your travels, such um, further and intrigue. I'm just so interested. And I think people like yourselves, like small town monsters, you know, they have a really good chance, a high chance of finding something very significant. So thank you for that. Just quickly before you go, let everybody know when they can find you, when they can watch part two. Absolutely. Of, uh, the awesome documentary and, um, and uh, how to purchase it. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Of course, I really enjoyed the conversation. And like you said, I mean, we're, we're just we're really lucky to be able to get out into some of these places. And I think it's for me, giving me a great appreciation for how much wilderness there still is out there. And I just hope that we can be in the right place at the right time with the right equipment. You hear so many sightings people have where they weren't prepared or they didn't even think it existed. It can't exist and they're seeing it. Uh, we hear that all the time. So um, maybe as the technology catches up, we'll be able to get there. Um, but <clears throat> Bigfoot Beyond the Trail is the series that I create on the Small Town Monsters YouTube channel. That's primarily where you can check it out. I think it will be going up on Tubi and other places eventually as well. But for now, it's it's a YouTube-based show, and we've got like 24, 25 episodes that are almost, you know, almost all of them are feature films, basically. So um, check that out on the Small Town Monsters channel. And then, of course, there's other Small Town Monsters series on YouTube. There's also other films that come out. We do them sort of uh, in kind of conjunction. This Alaskan Coastal Sasquatch, if you just go to our YouTube channel, you can find part one. Part two will be coming out on Christmas Day, the 25th of December, 2022. And then I think 17th of January, Seth's film on the trail of Bigfoot, The Last Frontier is coming out, which is, you know, kind of going to be an expansive look into the Bigfoot topic in Alaska. And that'll be Amazon, a lot of the different streaming platforms online. But if you go to Small Town Monsters and the website, you can find out all the information about that and links and go to YouTube and check out Small Town Monsters uh, YouTube page because that's a great place to see all of our stuff. Awesome. Thank you again. It's been amazing. As for usual, and for anybody listening out there, you could literally spend the entire Christmas period binging Small Town <laughs> Monsters and get past New Year into January, February even. There's so much material out there. Hop on smalltownmonsters.com and, and, and check it out. Thank you, Alex. Thanks.